Oh, what a beautiful song that reminds us of the faithfulness of God there. I know that might be a, a new song to many of you here this morning, but I'm thankful it's a song that many of our students know. It's a song we've sung uh, for many years now at Ascend Camp each year, so it's fun to see those songs making their way into our services as well. And as Tyson said, they're almost like mini uh, sermon clips, each of those uh, different lines of the song. And so uh, be tempted to say, let's close in prayer, but... Uh, I'm excited for us to go to God's Word and take part in one more sermon here yet this morning. So I invite you this morning to turn to Joshua chapter 8. If you have your Bibles this morning, Joshua chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, uh, don't worry. We have our two strongest warriors in this church who are going to get you one. So just put your hand in the air and they'll make sure that they can uh, get you one so that you can follow along with us uh, this morning. Especially like the new setup with the chairs here. The extra distance means that... uh, People in the front row are out of what we would maybe call the splash zone. Um, Or it just means that we're opening up more room for more dancing during the songs. But I'll let you decide which one is more pertinent. So this morning, Joshua chapter 8 obviously comes on the heels of Joshua 7, where we were last week, where we learned about the dangerous nature of sin and how sin is the greatest threat to your ability to follow God by faith. It was certainly a heavy passage, but one that was also filled uh, with a lot of grace because God reveals the cause of his anger. He tells uh, the Israelites what they must do in response to that sin, and they follow through with it. And by the end of the chapter, we are left with this pile of stones that uh, are heaped over Achan and his family to serve as a reminder to us that we serve a God not just of grace, but a God who is also just. And I want to assure you here this morning that that is a good thing, that we have a God who knows right from wrong, that has such standards in place because we want a God who is just. But today we do return to God's grace even in the midst of battle. And I know what you're thinking, guys, finally, some more bloodshed, some more war. So we are going to get to that here today. Ladies, that might be your thing, too. If so, kudos to you. I'm excited for you as well this morning. Uh, But in this chapter, we're going to see the Israelites returning to the small post of Ai with a much different expectation of the outcome. So I'd encourage you this morning, hopefully there in Joshua chapter 8, to stand and honor the public reading of God's word as we read from Joshua chapter 8. Uh, we're going to, again, navigate a, a fairly long chapter, so I'm going to read in some sections and portions here, uh, but I'll have you uh, guide you as we go along here. But Joshua chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Jump down to verse 10. And Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went uh, up, he and the elders, to Israel before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine uh, between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and he set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard to the west of the city. 
But Joshua spent the night in the valley, and as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. The men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as... They had entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who had fled into the wilderness turned back against their pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw the ambush had captured the city, and the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. And when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, All Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he had stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city, the city Israel took as plunder according to the word of the Lord that he had commanded Joshua So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. So we're going to stop this morning and ask. encourage you to be seated and let's pray, ask for God's favor on our time as we go into our study. And so, Father, we do ask that now. Uh, We pray for your grace to to abound to us as we seek to unpack this passage, to better understand it uh, for the sake of what it means for us as your people. We recognize that living in a fallen, sin-cursed world, Lord, we are still prone to wander. We are prone to, to fall and to fail. And I pray that this passage would give us hope in the midst of your grace to know uh, that there is great grace in moving forward in faith. So help us to see that today. Pray that the uh, words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our culture loves a good comeback story, don't we? Comeback stories are the things of the sports world. It makes for great movies. Uh, Even in school, we recognize that there are aspects of comebacks. It's strange to say, but we often love to see people fail only to watch them succeed in response to that failure. 
Uh, we can appreciate people learning from their mistakes, or as the saying goes, to rise from the ashes. I'm reminded of several years ago, or a couple of years ago, when the Virginia men's basketball team in the March Madness tournament in 2018 became the first team ever to be the top seed in a tournament, only to lose to the lowest seed in the tournament. It was humiliating and devastating to be the first one ever to have such a horrible failure, only to, the following year in 2019, come back and win the national championship. I mean, that's, that's a good story there. That's a comeback story. We talked about last week, students, how often you can have a, a test that's going really well only for one thing to go wrong and the rest of it to just completely fall apart as a result. But then maybe learn from those mistakes so that the next time you go into that test, you conquer the very material that had conquered you the previous time. One of our favorite TV shows as a family is the uh, show American Ninja Warrior that maybe some of you are familiar with that uh, requires uh, competitors to compete in layers of obstacles that increasingly get more difficult with time to be the hope of the last ninja standing. And this year, an 18-year-old who began the show two years ago as a rookie had great success his first year as a rookie, only last year to experience what many call the sophomore slump, where he experienced numerous failures along the way and had a horrible season by his standards, only to come back this year as an 18-year-old and win the show, becoming only the third competitor ever in 15 seasons to win the entirety of the show. And we could go on with countless other examples of people who have experienced comebacks, but the truth remains, we appreciate a comeback. And what we have on display in Joshua 8 is a comeback story. And while there are certainly human subjects at play in this story, the main actor, the main player who is working behind the scenes in this story is none other than God himself. We need to see that at the heart of every spiritual comeback is a gracious, powerful, merciful God. And so what I want us to see this morning in Joshua 8 is that despite our failures, God is gracious. God is gracious to help us keep moving forward in faith. In other words, we are not defined by our failures Failures are not the things that are meant to keep us from moving forward. In fact, God uses those failures to help us move forward. And after experiencing this humiliating and devastating defeat in chapter 7 at the hands of this small post of AI, Israel is ready for another crack at it. Uh, they have dealt with the source of their problem, which was the greedy, sinful heart of a man named Achan. And now they can set their sights once again on the task before them of taking the promised land. And Joshua 8 is uh, the longest chapter that we have come across thus far in uh, the book of Joshua. And it is certainly one that has more detail than most do in terms of the battle strategies. And we'll certainly consider some of those this morning, but I don't want to lose sight of the bigger picture at stake here, that God is the one helping his people move forward from their past mistakes, that only by his strength will they be able to conquer failure in moving forward 
and faith. And so I want to look at this story with you again in four parts with God as the central player. Four different parts, and we'll begin here in chapter 1 where we see God's forgiveness granted. That God's forgiveness is indeed granted to the Israelites in verse 1. You saw that here. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and rise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand. Because Israel dealt with their sin, we saw at the end of chapter 7 in verse 26, God's anger, God's wrath towards the people had been removed. It was now uh, no longer a barrier. And so now we see here in chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord's message to Joshua is move out, advance, let's go. In fact, it looks very similar to chapter 1 where he says, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. It basically picks up the story of Joshua saying, okay, let's move forward. It's done. Let's take the next step. And this is how God's uh, relationship with his people works. Because we reminded last week that sin drives a wedge in our relationship with the Lord. It doesn't diminish, it doesn't uh, eliminate that relationship, but it certainly does hinder it, doesn't it? We're reminded in Hebrews 12.1 that sin is a, a burden. It is a weight that we are called to cast off in order to be able to run the race of faith that is set before us. First John 1 John 1.9 reminds us that God is faithful and just to forgive if we confess our sins, if we walk in the light. He will cleanse us from that unrighteousness and restore us to that right relationship that we have with him. That wedge is no longer there, but we can walk forward in faith. And so we see that here with the Israelites, that forgiveness is granted and God calls for Joshua and Israel to move on. It's time to take the next step. Let's keep going. And if there are any doubts about this, God reassures them here in verse 1, I have given you victory. Just like he did with Jericho, right? Before the battle even began, I will give you this city. It's already done. It's a guaranteed promise. But the question remains, how are they going to go about it this time? Ai is not like the other cities, that, that like Jericho, that had the high walls. So what's the strategy here compared to the last time? And this is where we see in verses 2 through 17, God's wisdom revealed. We see God's wisdom revealed here in this. And we see in chapter 8, the strategy looks much different, right? In fact, we see here that God actually does have the ability to craft a pretty good military uh, plan, right? Uh, God has that side to him. And we're given a lot of detail about it, but what's the summation of what the strategy is here at Ai? Look at verse 2 there. At the very end, the, the whole strategy is summed up in that final line, lay an ambush against the city behind it. Set a trap. You're going to go for misdirection. In fact, you're going to take or steal a play from Rahab's playbook. I'm going to have you throw them a trick play. You're going to send them one direction and go the other way. So how is this ambush going to work? Well, the detail in the chronology is a little fuzzy here. Uh, and so rather than trying to walk through every little piece of it, uh, just give you a summary here. So maybe it would be helpful if we reenacted it real quick. Anybody want to be a reenactor today? I'm just kidding. We don't have to do that. We did do that with the students a few years ago, um, and it went about as well as you would imagine it would went. So 
Somehow the church didn't appreciate us setting the, the intersection building on fire, but that's another story. So what happened here is there's, there's two main phases that are going on here. So overnight, the Lord uh, has Joshua send a large portion of the troops, and he, pushes it, he positions them to the west of the city as what we would call the ambush group. So if we were doing this oriented with the room here, north is this way, so west is this way, so your ambush group is on the other side of that wall, you can't see them, right? They're hidden. They're concealed. Um, and the rest of the army is going to the north. So behind me here, you guys are AI, by the way. You get destroyed. So um, AI is right here. The rest of the troops are to the north. And the way it's going to work is that this troop is going to be the diversion group. They're going to come up. AI is going to see them coming towards them just like they did before. But what happened before? The Israelites fled, right? They were in trouble, and so they ran away from the city, and they're going to do the exact same thing here, but to draw the people, the fighting forces, away from Ai. And when that happens, the ambush group to the west of the city will then sweep in, come into the city while it's defenseless, and take it over and trap the Aiites between their forces and the ones that are in the wilderness, and you make a giant Israelite sandwich as a result, Right? And we learn in verses 14 to 17 that everything works exactly like they had planned. The people are drawn away from the city so that it was left completely defenseless. The end of verse 17, they left the city open and pursued Israel. In other words, it works like a charm. It does exactly what God said it would do. This wisdom is unmatched by the Lord, using Israel's past failure to help them succeed this time. And that leads us to verses 18 to 29, where we see God's justice executed. And in these verses, we see the defeat and the humiliation of Ai in a way that really reverses things from chapter 7, right? Because it was the Israelites who experienced defeat and a great humiliation as a result. But notice in verse 18 that victory happens as Joshua raises his staff or his javelin in hand. It actually reminds us in many ways of Moses in Exodus 19 when he and the Israelite forces are battling Amalek in the wilderness. And Joshua is actually among the fighting men. He's commanding the troops. But you have Aaron and Hur upholding Moses in his hands knowing that when his hands are in the air, when his staff is raised, Israel is given victory. And so Joshua, taking on kind of a Moses-like figure here, is in the same position that when his javelin is raised, and he does so the whole battle, we learn until verse 26, Israel experiences great victory, God's victory and God's judgment over Ai. And as we read earlier in verse 19, we see that that ambush group from the west takes the city. By verse 20, the men of Ai who went into the wilderness to pursue the Israelites realize what's happening behind them. Their city is going up in smoke, and they realize that they are trapped in between. And in verses 21 to 23, the, the forces from Israel, uh, the, the, um, the ambush troop, go out to meet the Aiites in battle, and they just completely consume them in between. And they go back to the city and they finish off the job in verses 24 to 26. A complete and decisive victory for Israel. 
And notice even too, we highlighted this last week, but verse 27, we see God's grace to allow the Israelites actually some of the spoil of the war this time, uh, the livestock and some of the goods in the city, which is very different because they weren't expected to do that in Jericho because the battle belonged to the Lord. And we learned that it was the selfish, greedy heart of a man named Achan who was responsible for their failure later on. Because he took from Jericho, he took from those things because he didn't believe and he didn't trust in God's goodness to provide. And yet here God is saying, I am gracious, I will provide. And he does exactly that. Now again, chapter 8 presents us with a lot of potentially hard things to wrestle with morally. After all, this whole city, men, women, children, animals, everything is completely devastated, wiped out, erased. And I want to remind you if, you, if you weren't here when we studied the book of, uh, or when we weren't studying, uh, when we were studying the battle of Jericho, we talked through some of those things. I would encourage you to go back to, and listen to some of those principles that help us better understand why God is just to allow such punishment on these people but the most brutal expression we see here probably is towards the king in verse 29 where the king is treated differently. Uh, the king is actually hanged on a tree. And this was a, a, a very brutal expression of, of punishment, but it was a wartime practice done so in many ways to punish that leader for their crimes against humanity and really as a way to uh, send a message to the other surrounding people groups, do not be like this man. This is God's judgment upon him. But notice they adhere to Deuteronomy 21 where they don't leave his body up. They actually take it down. They raise over it, once again, another heap of stones. We've seen these pile of stones throughout Joshua. And it is there to remind everyone, the Israelites included, that God is just. These stones testify that God is a just God. And he will punish wrongdoing and he will do what is right. Now, if that seems like an abrupt ending to the story, there's more. And I would say not the ending is so abrupt as it is the next phase in the story. Because we didn't read verses 30 through 35. Let's read those real quick because this leads us to our fourth section of the story where God's faithfulness is remembered. Look at verse 30 and through 35 here. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with the elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of, the, of the, all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourner who lived among them. 
This section's a little bit of a whiplash, isn't it? Because you go from the battlefield to a worship service. Pretty abrupt change, isn't it? And it's not just abrupt in its change of tone, but also in its change of location. Uh, Since most of you are experts in Israelite geography, you don't need this explanation, but for those of you who don't know Israelite geography, uh, Mount Ebal is about 20 miles north of where they just were in Ai. So in one verse, we go 20 miles catapulted to a whole different place in the promised land. And here we see a covenant renewal ceremony taking place. We see an altar built, the law of the Lord read, written, sacrifices made. Uh, What all is happening here? Well, what is happening is that the people are being faithful to do what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 27, where they were called upon entering into the promised land to find a time to read both the blessings and the cursings of the Old Testament law at this specific location. And that timing may seem strange to you, but notice that it's kind of sandwiching chapter 5 and chapter 8 together. Because chapter 5, you remember we learned about those covenant signs of, uh, of circumcision and Passover upon entering into the land. And now you have chapter 8 where they're being reminded of God's law and what happened in between those two things. We saw great success at Jericho. We saw great failure at Ai. And then we saw great success in response at Ai. In other words, the, the reading of the Old Testament law, particularly the blessings and the cursings, having been in the promised land for just a few weeks already, Israel has already experienced the reality of those two things, haven't they? What it looks like to obey God and experience success and great blessing, but also what it looks like to disobey God and experience great punishment and consequences. So here they commemorate their relationship with Yahweh in the most comprehensive way. In fact, if you, have a, if you like to write in your Bibles or circle in your Bible, verses 33 to 35, circle that word all because you see it on numerous occasions. All of God's people, all of God's word. It's kind of some principles for how we think about corporate worship. Right, That we're motivated by God's glory, but we bring together all of God's people and we surround ourselves by all of God's written word to adhere to it, to learn from it, to obey and to adore it together. But I think that one of the most important things to think about here is not just the blessings and the cursings that were remembered that day, but also it was a chance for the people to remember God's faithfulness to them despite their failures. Uh, to be reminded that, they, uh, that their God would remain committed to them even when they weren't perfectly committed to him. And I think the significance of this ceremony can only be appreciated when you realize where it's taking place. Uh, once again, because you're good scholars and know your geography, you know that nestled in between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim is the small town of Shechem. And if that sounds familiar to you, it, it should Because it was at Shechem that the Lord appeared to a man named Abraham and told Abraham, I will give you descendants and I will give you a land where you will dwell forever. The very land where his great, 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 great grandchildren were now 
residing or now conquering. In other words, here we are in Joshua 8 and his people, his offspring, are experiencing the blessings of returning to that land that he had promised them hundreds of years earlier at that very location. Church, God is faithful to his people. He will keep his word. No amount of time, and listen to me, no amount of failure can ever overcome the promises of God. So in light of everything that we've encountered here in chapter 8, let me give you a few points to ponder this morning as we walk away from this passage. And the first is this. That putting your past behind is essential to moving forward in faith. That putting your past behind is essential to moving forward in faith. Did you catch the simplicity of verse 1? The simplicity of verse 1 should stand out to you. After the concluding events of chapter 7, God's response is immediate and complete forgiveness. He tells his people to move out. Just like that? Yeah. Just like that. I go back to what I said last week, that there are some of you in this room who should probably be more bothered by your sin than what you are. Uh, Chapter 7 really causes us to wrestle with how we see sin from God's perspective. However, as we come to chapter 8, I also recognize there's another group of you that need to be addressed this morning, and that is those of you this morning who have been hanging on to the guilt of your past sins for far too long, often holding yourself to a higher standard than what maybe even God himself does, even punishing yourself for the sins that Jesus Christ himself has already been punished for. You've heard people say over the years, "I, I just can't forgive myself. And while I understand where that language comes from, the reality is it's not biblical because you're not expected to forgive yourself because Jesus Christ has already forgiven you. If you have united your life to to him by faith, if you are trusting in his finished work, then guess what? Your sins have been paid for completely. There is no more condemnation for you. If you are a true follower of God, you have already been completely forgiven And so as hard and as weird as it is to say, move on with God because God is moving on with you. He is still on your side and you are still his child. And so this morning is an encouragement to you. If you are wrestling with that, understand this, that the the forgiveness that you have been granted in Christ is complete and full. And he desires for you to be able to move forward. Secondly, True success is found in obedience to God's commands. Uh, We live in a world that loves to talk about success, don't we? Has all kinds of formulas, all kinds of books, all kinds of motivational speakers. Success is uh, found or defined in all kinds of things, from our jobs to our accomplishments, to our family, our kids, our retirement, you name it. Success is defined in a lot of different ways. But Joshua 8 presents us with the true secret to success. And guess what? It's no different than what we've learned from every single chapter prior to this. You want to know the secret formula to success? It's this. Trust and obey. To trust God and obey his word. 
Perhaps another reason why so much detail is given as this chapter is to highlight the fact that Israel is being completely obedient in all regards to what God had set forth here, especially after they had failed, given them multiple chances to obey at every twist and turn of this chapter. And we could have spent our whole morning here on this very point, but the truth remains these people trusted and obeyed. We must remember to define success according to God and be a people who are marked by our faith and our obedience. Speaking of trust, our third point is this. Trusting in God's strength means boasting in your weakness. An initial glance at this chapter would not feel like it's much of a a comeback story when you consider that the Israelites had tens of thousands of forces and the entire population of Ai was 12,000 people. I mean, that's not really a fair matchup if you look at it, right? Um, In fact, some would maybe look at that and say, man, all these tens of thousands of people feels a little bit like overkill, right? Pun intended. But remember, Israel's success had nothing to do with the number of forces they had. It had nothing to do with the number of people they had. They could have had three soldiers for all that mattered. But at the end of the day, what truly matters is that they had one person who was with them, right? That was the basis of their success and has been that way since the beginning of the story. As Dale Ralph Davis says, with the power of God, the great Jericho could be taken. Without his power, not even the smallest post could be overrun. And listen to what he says here. How utterly dependent God's people are upon God's power for success. That's what Paul reminds us of in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10. That when we are weak, that's actually when we are strong. That God's power is made perfect in our weaknesses. And so the story reminds us how utterly dependent we are upon God for any success in our life. And when that success does come, he receives all the glory for it. Because it is not the strength that I operate in. It's in the strength that he supplies to me. And by the way, let's, I'm going to give you a bonus point this morning. It's not on the screen here, but a bonus point. I want you to see in this story this morning how God uses our failures for his glory, right? Because the reason this battle plan was so successful at Ai was why? Because Israel had failed the previous time. In other words, the Aiites wouldn't have pursued them into the wilderness if they didn't truly believe that they could conquer them again. And so you have God here in his infinite wisdom using Israel's failure from the past and using that as the secret weapon in this battle plan because he knew it would draw the people of Ai away from the city. That's God responding to your failures, using your failures in a way that ultimately brings him glory in the end. Fourth. God's faithfulness should cause us to pause and worship. And once again, the overall narrative flow of Joshua is interrupted suddenly and surprisingly. We go from this battle scene to this church service, from execution to exaltation. But it's not the first time we've seen that in this story, is it? We saw this in chapter 5, showing us not only the importance, uh, but also the priority of pausing and praising God for his faithfulness. Once again, Dale Ralph Davis says it so well. He says, heeding God's word is more crucial for us than fighting God's war. 
slowing down, adhering, and worshiping God is so important in the midst of a world that is constantly moving so fast. We are meant to feel the abrupt shift in the story. God does that for a reason so that we would see that and notice it and feel it ourselves to recognize that in a world that's constantly moving 100 miles an hour, we need to pause and remember to regularly give thought to God and his place in our lives and to remember his faithfulness. That's what we do every Sunday, by the way. Do you notice that? That's, that's why you're here this morning is because you've broken from the regular routine of a a busy week where you are working when you're caring for your families and you were here this morning to pause and remember and to praise God for all the ways that he works in your life and to help you press forward in your journey of faith you recognize that hopefully and so we do that corporately but there is a place for how we need to do that each as individuals in our daily weekly lives as well But finally this morning, I want us to consider here this, that Jesus became a curse so that we might overcome this broken world. I want to take you back to verse 29 for a moment, because verse 29, again, is kind of a a stark verse in this whole thing, talking about this hanging of the, the king of Ai. Uh, But we notice here this gruesome picture that the Israelites still observe a principle in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. I'll read it here. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And you say, Pastor Scott, why are, you, why are you mentioning this? Why are you bringing this up? This is pretty morbid language, but this language should sound familiar to you because it's the exact same language that Paul used in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, where he said that Christ Jesus became a curse for us. In fact, he quotes there from Deuteronomy 21 that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Church, this verse reminds us here that Jesus Christ himself became a curse for sin so that you would not have to. That unlike the the king of Ai and the inhabitants of that city, you do not have to experience God's judgment of wrath due to your sin. Jesus Christ has come as your substitute to bear that burden for you, to bear that curse, to become that shame, so that you, by putting your faith in him, resting everything upon it, might be rescued from that judgment to come. That you might experience that newness of life that comes from being adopted into God's forever family, being marked as a people of faith, even more importantly, a people who have been redeemed who have been bought, and who have been spared from this curse. Church, this is the God who has been so faithful to us. And he is worthy to be followed with everything that we have because of how he has become a curse for us so that we can walk daily, every moment, by faith in him. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you have sent your son into this world so that we would be rescued from it. We thank you that we 
can be a people who are marked by faith. It's not about the, the strength and ourselves, Lord. It's all because of the grace that you have displayed by sending your son into this world. And we still recognize that even if we are trusting in that, if we are resting in that truth, we still live in this fallen world where we do mess up, we do stumble and fall short still of your glory. But we know because we are united to Christ by faith, we have everything we need to keep moving forward, that you are God who has forgiven us, that when we confess our sins, you are are just and gracious to forgive us and to bring us back into all right standing with you. And so I pray that you would grant that today to, to those who may be struggling with it. Lord, help us to be a people who, who learn from the mistakes of our past, but ultimately move forward in faith knowing that you are gracious to glorify your name through your imperfect people. So would you receive the glory for that even today? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.